So Jesus the Game Changer is a series we've created. It uh, has been used here in this church and in others in this city and across Australia. It's a 10-part DVD series, and it looks at how the life and teaching of Jesus changed the world and why it matters, and it's series number one. So it looks at issues like equality or, and care and education and um, the medical system, where our universities came from, humility and leadership, all these ideas, all these values that Western democratic, liberal, secular nations hold on to as key foundational values. And we kind of think that that's the way the world has always been. We think that most of the world still does that now. Then we think if it was invented, it was probably invented in the Enlightenment period. None of those things are true. And in fact, if you look at the Greco-Roman world and you look at the life and teaching of Jesus and the early church and those who followed Jesus, you can actually trace the foundational values to our community back to the person of Jesus. And some of you are here tonight, followers of Jesus, keen Christians, just on fire, and you hear me say that and you think, that sounds like a stretch. That's because you haven't read a lot. It's because we haven't looked at this. It's because we've swallowed the lines and the narratives given to us by a culture that wants to take Christianity out of the public marketplace. If I could just stay on this for a couple of minutes. One of the motivations for this is the concept that Christian faith has moved from, say, 100 years ago, if I can use that sort of generalization, where Christianity was sort of like central to our thinking. It's not that everybody was a Christian, certainly not. It was very central to the way Western democratic nations worked. Then in the 1960s, as we saw in a particular chart, and the growth of the no religion, those who tick the census no religion box, from before that, it was only 5%. After that, it grew exponentially. And the 1960s was around the point that it changed. In the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, there was this shift within Western nations where we kind of said, you know, if you're, kind of, if you're from the past era, you've kind of got a, a mind that's not open to the new world. If you're not enlightened in your thinking, you probably hold on to religious faith. You hold on to Christian faith. And that's sort of the past way of thinking. And we now see Christianity as an irrelevance in our community. And so Christianity moved from sort of being central and, in, and significant and important to something many people saw in Western nations as irrelevant. And most of you might think, oh, that's where we are now. We've actually moved past that. And it probably shifted at the, the change of the millennia. It probably shifted in a lot of people's minds as the, the, the world tra trade towers went down in that terrorist attack in New York. That certainly shifted Richard Dawkins' thinking about religion. And religion moved from being seen as an irrelevant idea that we could just avoid to a dangerous concept, a dangerous ideology. And think about this logically. What do you do with dangerous ideologies? You pull them out of the public marketplace. You pull them out of politics, you pull them out of media, you pull them out of universities, and you certainly pull them out of schools. That's the push. Uh, Paul Kelly, who writes for The Australian, is a, a, a journalist and has been writing for The Australian newspaper for years, actually wrote an article in July last year where he said, the aim of the progressive movement in politics in Australia is to take religion out of the public square. That's what they want. And what we're trying to say in, in, this, in this series is, to put it crassly, the values that created our public square came from the person of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are struggling with that concept, you need to watch the series. And it's a way of not triumphantly saying we're the most important people in the world. What we're saying is the values that you hold on to as a secular, even atheist in this community, are values that you've imbibed from a Christian culture. And that's been an enormous influence on who we are as a nation as Australia and some of the great nations in the world as those nations draw themselves away from Christianity. Let me give you one example. There's a guy called Tom Holland. My wife says I have a man crush on Tom Holland. That is a little untrue, although there could be some truth in that. The guy is brilliant. The interesting thing about Tom Holland, I found out about him in 2016 when we were launching Jesus the Game Changer in the UK, 
and I was being interviewed on Premier Radio by Justin Briley, who runs a radio show called Unbelievable. If you're into apologetics and answers for Christian faith, Unbelievable is a great program. And Justin Briley was interviewing me about, geez, the game changer. I was at, the, at, at Premier Radio, and he basically said, uh, oh, Carl, knowing what your new series is on, you really need to read this article. And he pushed this photocopy across the table. He said, that's coming out this month in England. And it was written by Tom Holland. Most of you won't know that name. I'm, I'm sure nobody would know that name. Tom Holland's reasonably well known in the UK. He's, he's a kind of expert on the Greco-Roman world. When, you, when I asked him, we interviewed him. This, we didn't interview him for the first series of Jesus the Game Changer. We interviewed him for the second series, which I'm going to talk a little bit about tonight. And when, I was, uh, when we were interviewing him, I said, so why are you interested in the Greco-Roman world? He said, well, I grew up loving dinosaurs. Stay with me. And uh, he said, you know, dinosaurs are these, these kind of great creatures of enormous power and, and, uh, and, he said, and, and now they're extinct. And I can see great links between a Tyrannosaurus rex and the Spartans of the Greco-Roman world. This enormous power that's now extinct. And he sort of moved his interest from, from, from dinosaurs as a kid to the Greco-Roman world and just loved it. Loved the Greco-Roman world, loved everything about it, wrote books about it, wrote novels about it, has done some um, uh, documentaries on, I think it's ITV4 in the UK. So quite well known. But the article was called this, Why I Changed My Mind About Christianity. Now, you can go and Google that article and, and read it yourself. It's just a couple of pages. I think it's still pretty available. He's not saying, I'm a Christian. That's what's really important. And in the interview, he's not saying he's a Christian. I need to tell you, he's about halfway there. But he's not saying he's a Christian. What he's saying is, I started to look more closely at the Greco-Roman world. I started to look at the va their values and the way they behaved. I started to, to, to notice and remind myself that this is a callous, brutal group of people that cared not one ounce for the individual. And he started to notice that what we believe in Western societies today as a decent way of behaving and treating people was so countercultural to what they did. So they, you know, they would somewhere early just kill disabled children. And he, was, he said their attitudes were repellent. And the problem was it wasn't like people thought, oh, that's a bad way to behave. Then everybody thought that was fine. No problem at all. And he's like, why in that period was it like that? And now we think so differently. Like, as an aside, think about the gladiatorial events. You know, the gladiator. Remember when Russell Crowe was in Gladiator? That was all those years ago when he was young and cut. Not quite so much now. Uh, so Russell Crowe was, you know, Gladiator. And I loved it. I loved the movie. I loved the whole concept. Fantastic. But think about it. This is a group of people, several thousand people, whose only reason for existence, only reason for existence, was to go into an arena and kill each other, like not fake blood and tomato sauce, actually kill each other for the entertainment of the crowd. And nobody in these vast arenas would go, is that a good idea? Now think about it. How odd is that? We complain about violence on television, yet we know it's all fake. These people are killing each other and nobody cared. And Tom Holland started to look at that and recognize that the change in the way we care for people, the dignity, worth and value of every person, that we treat everybody, we might not treat everybody the same, but we have this sense that everybody is of equal worth. In the last election, think about this. Your vote was worth exactly the same as Scott Morrison's. Like, you think about that. That is a pretty remarkable thing. His tick is not worth one scrap more than your tick. Why do we do that? Because we believe in the value and worth of every person. Now, that did not exist in the Greco-Roman world. They believed in a subclass of humanity that were slaves, that, that just were there to serve everybody else, and that was okay. Holland is looking at this and he's recognizing that the change from the Greco-Roman world to the world we have today was actually the life and teaching of Jesus and the early church and the way they treated people. That changed the world.
And here's Holland. I mean, you would expect me to say something like this. But here's Holland, an academic, thinker, historian, documentary maker, looking at this world and going, you know, at the end of the article, he says this. As the West moves away from Christianity, as the West is sort of pushing Christian faith and the church out of the public marketplace, he says, I've come to understand that in my values and in my morals, I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. Now, he's not saying, I'm therefore a Christian. He's saying that the values that I hold, the foundational values that make me a person and make the society I live in a free, open, democratic society, actually are an outcome and the life and teaching of Jesus. And what we're trying to do is this is almost a cultural apologetic to speak to some great minds around the world and to say, what are the differences that Jesus made and how does that influence, influence us today? And we're just filming a second series, season two of Jesus the Game Changer, and it has a slightly different kind of tilt. Before I get there, let me just say that there's when, when I go to places and come to places like this, I always bring some of the product just so that people use it. This is not about sales. It's not about products. It's, it's just we want to see people use this series. And one of the great and wonderful but annoying things is it always sells out, <laughs> which is wonderful because I don't have to take it back on the plane if the plane ever leaves. Um, apparently, my flight just got cancelled, Tina. The great news. Yeah, we're, coming, we're going back Wednesday afternoon. No, not quite. <laughs> But look, they've sold out, but we have, we have a do a deal. You can, Karen, isn't it? Tracy, yeah. She changed the name, just not, yeah, close. It's almost the same number of letters. Tracy, if you would like to buy the copy at the prices that we have, and she can tell you all about it, see her, pay for it tonight, and we will post it to the church next week, and you can pick it up. That's, we're happy to do that. Because if you buy it online, if you buy it at Kurong, it'll be much more expensive. So if you're interested, and you want to get it at that price, just see Tracy. By the time she gets to the table, her name will change to Karen. Um, <laughs> is that right? I think that's a word of prophecy. Really. <laughs> Come on. And I'm a Baptist. Get, get out of here. <laughs> so this series is called To the Ends of the Earth. And if, if the first series is asking the question, how did the life and teaching of Jesus change the, the foundational values of our society, this is asking this question. How did Christians, how did those who followed Jesus become the largest global religion, both in geographical reach, in numbers of people, depending on how you do your theology and, and, and counting, it's probably 2.1 billion people across the globe. How did they get from that tiny backwater to be a truly global religion. And we actually take that for granted, don't we? Of course, Christians are all over the world. Think about it. Jesus of Nazareth. That makes Nazareth sound impressive, doesn't it? Jesus of Nazareth, you know. Nazareth was nowhere. Think about the smallest place in South Australia that you can think of. The most insignificant... I'm not going to mention any names, seriously. I'm not going to... But you think about the place in South Australia that's kind of a long way from anywhere that you kind of think, wow, this is, a, this is a sort of pretty nothing place. Jesus of there. That's what Nazareth was. Uh, Palestine was way out on the east side of the Roman Empire. Uh, as others have said, it, you know, it had this weird cultish religion that only believed in one God. <laughs> what a weird group, because the Greco-Roman world was polytheistic. So if you only believed in one God, you were, you were basically seen as an atheist because you only believed in one God. They had this very impressive temple. People wished to go there to see the temple, but that was about it. There was this tiny, tiny sort of weird sect on the edge of the empire. When you got there on the edge of the empire, Nazareth was the edge of there. And then there's this top prophet from Nazareth, as my man crush friend Tom Holland said, the idea that the ruler of the world would come from Nazareth was the most bizarre concept. Not only that, it, didn't, it really didn't do much. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, boy, Carl, it's almost heresy. Think about it. What did Jesus leave? When, at the moment of his death, 
or his resurrection or his ascension. I don't mind which of those three you choose. What did he leave? Now, you're all thinking, well, he left the Bible, he left the church, all of that. He didn't really leave much at all. He hadn't actually registered or started an organization. He owned absolutely no property. He had written nothing. He'd only had a few followers. In fact, the first gathering after he'd left in Acts 1.15, guess how many people there were? 120. Probably there's more here tonight. That was it. That was it. He... he uh, there were, he didn't really travel very far, you know, perhaps here to the Victorian border and back, not very far, really. He just, there were, really, there was, there was nothing particularly significant about what Jesus had done. It didn't, he didn't actually leave anything particularly much at the time. And if you were thinking, I wonder how long these followers of Jesus would last. Who would have thought past a week, really? How do you prove someone's not a Messiah if you're the Roman Empire and you're trying to squash Everybody who sees themselves as a, a rival king or a rival messiah or a rival leader, what do you do? You crucify them. You publicly, in, 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 naked, hang them on a cross in a public space and you let them die a painful, humiliating and awful death and that's what they did to Jesus. Think about it. What chance was that ever going to last a day, a week or a year? Yet here we are. Mount Gambia, South Australia, Australia could potentially be seen as the ends of the earth. This is a long, long way from Jerusalem. This is a long way from Nazareth. And so how did that happen? What occurred that that meant that the church got to that place? This is now a global faith thing that we, we tend in Australia look, to look at places like Australia and England and Europe and America. And, well, perhaps it's not so much America, but certain those other places. And there's this sense of the church is dying, Christianity is dying, it's, it's you know, losing you know, the sort of number of followers. What you need to understand is that is a false view of the influence of Christianity globally. Christianity is growing globally. Rodney Stark, one of our guests, wrote a book that basically said the world is more religious today than it's ever been. And that's not just Christianity. If you go to the Hindu faith or Muslim faith, it is a, there are massive movements of religious people across the world and Christianity included. In the, in the year 1900, it was believed that in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa and Africa, there was about 9 million Christians. Do you know that by 100 years later, the turn of the century, they now see that there are 238 million Christians in Africa. And by 20, uh, 2035, a guy called uh, David Barrett from the, the World uh, Christian Encyclopedia says that by 2025, he reckons there'll be 633 million Christians in Africa. Exploding. Let's not even get into South America and Brazil or China. We're in China when the church was thrown out in China because of Chairman Mao and the Cultural Revolution. There were, there were basically hundreds of missionaries in China all had to leave. Churches were closed, pastors were jailed, people were persecuted, and when the, the country was closed for all of those years until the 1970s, there was this major question, what is happening to the church in China? By the 1970s, it opened up again. When it opened up and people go into China, guess what they found? A vibrant, thriving church, and the vibrant, thriving church has potentially somewhere between 30 and, million, uh, 30 and 50 million adherence to Christian faith. Now, that number is a, is a very rubbery number. You'll get some people who say there's 20 million Christians in China. You'll get some other people who say there's 150 million. Uh, it seems that scholars will say if you pitch down the middle, you'd probably get the number. Nobody really knows, but what they do know this is the church exists, is growing, and is influential even under pressure. So how do we get there? What happened? And here's a couple of thoughts for you tonight which speaks into our lives as well. There are three things that happen, and the first is call. Call is the first thing about how the church gets to the ends of the earth. Here's a little aside. That photo is actually from a drone shot of the next series. That's in La Labella in Ethiopia. We went to Ethiopia because Ethiopia is one of the first places in Africa that uh, Christianity came to, to Africa, and guess where it was? Acts chapter 8. 
very, very early times. And uh, we were wanting something that looked like the ends of the earth, and that kind of was the picture for us. The first is call. There's a sense of call. Across the ages, from the time of Jesus on, there was a call to follow this call to the ends of the earth. We interviewed Ed Stetzer. Tina's talked about Ed Stetzer, a great thinker and a great writer, guy that looks at mission. He says, one of the things that Ed Stetzer talks about is, what did the early church do? When we think about what we should do, what we think about what we're called to do, it's really helpful to say, what did the earliest church do? He said, the earliest church looked at the last words of Jesus. And if you look at the last words of Jesus, the recordings that we've got of what he said between his resurrection and his ascension in that short period of time, what did he do? He sent the church on mission. That was the key message that Jesus gives. In John chapter 20, Jesus says, As the Father sends me, so I send you. In Luke chapter 24, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to the nations. In Matthew chapter 28, what did he say? Remember that? Go into all the world. And as you go, preach the gospel, teaching them, uh, encouraging them, explaining all that I've left. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this key verse for the series, which is, I want you to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. The gospel is at the very ends of the earth is because the first followers of Jesus took his last words and made them his first priority. Our task is to take the last words of Jesus the last things he said, the key ideas that he gave to his disciples and, and make them our first priority. Now, the church would never have got to the ends of the earth if, the, if, if, the, if those followers of Jesus over the centuries did not make this their first priority. And there's a general call. For all of us, there's a call. None of us can kind of avoid that call. That doesn't mean we kind of leave our jobs and, and go in. Some of you may. It doesn't mean we all leave our jobs. It means that. I'm going to come back to this later. It's actually talking about Jesus whenever we get the opportunity because that's taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the second thing about call is there's specific call. There's specific things that Jesus said to certain individuals in calling them. You heard of St. Patrick. Some of you are nervous because you think he's a Catholic and I probably shouldn't be mentioning it. St. Patrick, and you probably thought, well, St. Patrick, isn't it something about snakes in Ireland, something about green beer? something about the 17th of March, and you're not really not sure about St. Patrick. St. Patrick is one of the great champions of the church and mission across the globe. And it's one of the great tragedies is that we don't talk about St. Patrick. Here's a bit of a St. Patrick story. Do you know how St. Patrick, St. Patrick is not Irish? St. Patrick probably grew up probably in Wales in England. Do you know the first way Patrick got to Ireland? There were raiders from Ireland, who by boat probably went to, to Wales in England and stole him from his family and took him onto a boat, took him back to Ireland and sold him as a slave. Ireland, Patrick went to Ireland as a 16-year-old and was sold into slavery into an area just north of, of Belfast, a place called Slemish, and in that place for six years... He looked after the sheep, potentially pigs, on the, on the hills on this area called Slemish. Now, interestingly, Patrick's family, because that area of England was, was influenced by Rome, influenced by the Roman Empire, and influenced by Christianity. So his family had Christian roots. But as a slave on the side of the mountain, looking after somebody else's sheep, pigs, and animals... He deepened his faith in Jesus. He, would be, he wrote himself years later, I prayed a hundred times a day. And he started getting visions from God. And one day there was a vision, a very, very clear vision that said, there's a ship waiting, go to the ship. He runs 200 miles across dangerous territory, won't go into all that, and finds this ship, probably somewhere near where Dublin is today. He talks his way onto the ship. That's another complex story. And then eventually, it's a, it's a, we're really not sure what happened for years, but eventually he gets home again. 
In, that, in those years, he trains to be a priest, becomes a leader of the church at that time. And then at the age of 40, he has another vision. And guess what the vision is? It's the people of Ireland calling him back. This vision come back exactly like Paul in the Macedonian call, a dream, a vision that said, come back and help us. Would you go to the place that you were held a slave as a kid for years, naked on the side of a mountain with no rights, no opportunity, no power? He says, I'll go. Get some friends, gets permission, and heads back to Ireland. Do not underestimate that that didn't change the world because that was in the 5th century. What was happening in Rome in the 5th century? Rome's being sacked. The, 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 the Goths, the Visigoths, the Vandals, that kind of gives away their attitude, doesn't it? They're sacking Rome. So the, the center of Christianity is being sacked by all these northern tribes. And yet here is God sending this ex-slave to a place called Ireland, which was actually the ends of the earth. They didn't know about America. Ireland was further west than England. So they actually thought Ireland is the ends of the earth. That's it, right there. It probably drops off after that. And Patrick actually thought when he was going back, you know, Jesus has come back, can come back again now because I have got to the ends of the earth. And guess what happens? He wins Ireland to Jesus. He creates these monastic movements that goes across Ireland. And without boring you with history, which you probably may be already there, they were those who went from there to a place called Iona in Scotland. And then from Iona in Scotland, they went to Lindisfarne. From Lindisfarne, they went to Glastonbury. And then another... Celtic Irish monk leaves from Bangor in Northern Ireland and ends up in France, Germany, Switzerland, Northern, Northern Italy. His name was Columbanus. These guys changed the world. Why? Because one kid didn't get angry and bitter. One kid trusted in Jesus. One kid deepened his faith. And one kid, when he grew up to be an adult, responded to the call of Jesus to go back. That actually revolutionized the world as we know it. Isn't that a great story? Why aren't we telling everybody that story? It's a wonderful story of God's call on somebody's life. The second thing I want to talk about is actually cost. And I wanted to start this by just mentioning a moment in time, which I think in a lot of ways, if you look at the sort of earliest history of the church, where it hung in the balance. So you know that you know that the Holy Spirit fell, the the, the the apostles go out, they go from frightened in an upper room to preaching the gospel. 3,000 people come to Jesus in that day. They then start meeting in the temple. When they meet in the temple, there are people added to their number daily. There's, who knows how many people were there? Potentially 5,000 people are meeting in the temple. Now, if you were an apostle, if you were a disciple, you would have been thinking, this is it. It's all happening. All the things that Jesus said was going to happen. This is it. I think huge crowds. And then... There was Saul and Stephen. Stephen gets an opportunity to preach in front of the Sanhedrin. Didn't go so well. At the end, he gets stoned to death. And that's in chapter 7 of Acts. Listen to this. Think about this. Very, very early on. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged men and women off and put them in prison. Then here is this verse. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Those who had been scattered in the face of persecution Preach the word wherever they went. If they'd stayed silent, we may not be here today. If they'd failed to share the message of Jesus, who would have thought that the church would have continued? But the, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. You know what? That's never changed. That's always been the case. And right across the ages, the church has always paid a cost mostly in people's lives, for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. 
I mentioned quickly the fact that I was in Japan filming. We filmed in Nagasaki. And Nagasaki, you'll think, well, I know Nagasaki. That's where they dropped the second atomic bomb. That was where the kind of war ended. Yes, I know Nagasaki. Do you know that Nagasaki was the center of Christianity in Japan from the middle of the 16th century? The middle of the 16th century, a guy called Francis Xavier, a Jesuit, that's another great story, ends up going right across the world to Japan and the Jesuits start using uh, Nagasaki Harbour as a centre of their work. They start influencing people for Jesus and there's literally 50 to 100,000 of followers of Jesus in that area. The shoguns of Japan decided to shut this down and they wanted to make an example of people. I mentioned yesterday, I think, that uh, what they did was they wanted to shut it down. They arrested 26 Christians in Kyoto and they marched them 700 kilometers to, to Nagasaki. Then on the side of a hill in Nagasaki, they crucified on crosses these 26 guys. You know, two of them were young boys, one 12 and one 14. And they knew what was going to happen when they got to Nagasaki. And as they walked up the hill at Nagasaki, here are all these 26 crosses all standing there waiting for them. And one young boy said, show me my cross. And the other said, show me mine. We often ask, show me my blessing. Show me what you've got for me, God. I want, I want great things in the future. Show me what you've got for me. Sometimes I wonder if a question, show me my cross, might be more apt when it comes to taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. That actually started uh, in the beginning of the next century, a few, few years later, started... 250 years of oppression of the church in Japan. In that part of the world, they want to get just rid Japan of Christianity. In fact, there's a book by Endo called Silence, and Martin Scorsese made a movie called Silence a couple of years ago. And it's about this story. And for 250 years, you were allowed, it was illegal to be a Christian. And if you, you had to go to the Buddhist temple every year, and you had to step on these things called the fumier, and the fumier was a picture of Jesus and a picture of Mary. And you had to walk forward, you had to register your name, get your name ticked off, uh, ticked off the list, step forward with your family and step on the face of Jesus and step on the face of Mary. And if you did not, or if you looked like you were unsure about what you were doing, you were tortured until you recanted or died. Seven generations of Christians survived that. In the 1860s, they opened a new small cathedral in Nagasaki. A French priest was there, and as he opened the church, all of a sudden, these people came out of the woodwork. Followers of Jesus of seven, cent, seven generations, 250 years. Korea, a place where there's massive growth in the church over the last 50 years. Do you know that Pyongyang, you know the name Pyongyang, it's the center of North Korea. It's a, the, when, when they put out the world watch list, North Korea is on the top of the list as the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian with the greatest oppression. Pyongyang in, two, in 1907 had a massive revival. North Korea. And when the Christian faith started coming to Korea, between eight and 9,000 Korean Christians in the 18th century lost their lives in the name of Jesus. There are people who have paid for this message with their lives. We, we tend to think in Australia that, you know, we get it tough. We're doing the whole Israel filial thing. We're seeing all the kind of tension, the pulling Christianity out of the public marketplace. And sometimes we talk about it like, oh, we've got persecution. Here's the deal. A Facebook post is not persecution. That's not saying there's not an issue. It's not saying we shouldn't stand up for Christian and religious rights, not just Christian rights. But it is saying there are people in the world today that face actual persecution. We ought to pray for them, we ought to support them, and we should recognize that the message going to the ends of the earth, people paid for it. This was not a free thing, it was not an easy thing. We interviewed Hassan John. He comes from Nigeria. We interviewed him in Ghana. He lives in Jos in Nigeria. Jos is the point where the Muslim north meets the Christian south. His church is a tent. You know why his church is a tent? Because the church that the bishop gave him to lead was burnt down in 2008. They started to rebuild it again. It was burnt down in 2010. And then uh, in the ashes, that's where they started to meet. 
He gathered, he had some friends in England who raised funds and now he has a tent. A few years after the tent went down, a bunch of young thugs, Muslim thugs, Islamic uh, extremists went into his built into the tent, burnt everything in the tent, took away all the PA uh, gear, everything they had, tried to burn the tent, but it was fireproof. So the tent's still there. Hassan John works in the Boko Haram area. You would have heard that phrase. The Boko Haram area, there's been 3,000 churches burnt down and probably about 100 pastors have lost their lives. He drives into that area and every time he gets home, he gets on his knees and he thanks God for another day. What a champion. What a hero. I was stuck in the airport last week for four, four hours and I was feeling sorry for myself. I thought about Hassan John. I'm like, Carl, get a grip. Seriously, man. These are the people that are standing up for Jesus in the most difficult place. We interviewed Mary Ann and Marzier. They've written a book called Imprisoned in, in Iran. These two girls came to faith in Iran. They uh, were following Jesus and decided that Jesus was calling them to give out Bibles in Tehran. They started going out at night and giving out Bibles. They probably gave over three years, gave out 20,000 Bibles, just putting into people's mailboxes. Now, eventually, when they found out about it, they, they, they arrested them. They were jailed for nine months in a, a, a really renowned prison for the way that they torture and, and, and abuse people. Uh, when they first were taken to prison, they were running house churches as well. These are two girls that are now probably in their early 30s. These were young women uh, committed to Jesus. And Mary Ann tells us that they took us in. They told us where, where you need to tell us the names of all your contacts. You need to tell us all the names of all the people in your church. You need to tell us all the names of the people you know. And if you don't tell us the names, we're going to beat you to your vomit blood. People are paying for the gospel with their lives. And we need to understand that it's a costly business to take the Bible, to take the message of Jesus, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And one of the things we have, I have to ask myself, and you have to ask yourself, is what am I willing to pay? Am I, really, am I actually willing to pay anything? And it's not just how much money we give, it's about what am I getting my, committing my life to? Because it's a costly business. And thirdly, it's about context. It's about the context that we find ourselves in. The interesting thing is, you know, we, one, of the reasons, one of the questions we ask people all the way through, actually, let me just give you a Hassan John quote. I nearly forgot. So a part of talking to Hassan John, here he is in, uh, in Nigeria, here he is in the Boko Haram area, here he is under persecution, and we say to Hassan, so what would you say, if you had the opportunity, what would you say to the church in the West? What would you say to us? What would you say to a gathering of Christians in Mount Gambia? This is what he said. He said, don't give up on the faith in your freedom that we are dying for in, in Nigeria. Thoughtful, isn't it? Wondering if Jesus is giving us enough. Is he answering our prayers? Is he turning up for us enough? Are we seeing enough? Our Christian leaders dying in parts of the world for the gospel we take for granted. And in that place, it actually means something significant and important. It is their life. That's what they hang on to. But the context is, so what about today? Where is the ends of the earth? I mean, if Christianity is kind of already global, if it's across geographically across the whole world, where is the ends of the earth? What is the context that we are called into? And in, and, and, and in interacting with people, here are four ways that we go to the ends of the earth today. And the ends of the earth is actually across the street. New York has 8.6 million people live in the greater area of New York. Do you know that New York is the most ethnically diverse metropolitan area in the world, 800 different languages exist in that area of New York. 800 languages. New Yorkers, Christians, don't have to go to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth have come to New York. The ends of the earth through the Congolese and the Burmese with us tonight have come to Mount Gambia. Can you imagine that? Here you are in Mount Gambia and the ends of the earth are coming to you. Every city across the world has the ends of the earth coming to them. The world is a global place in the sense that people are traveling all over the place and that gives us the opportunity to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth as the ends of the earth come here. I was in Adelaide two weekends ago. I was talking to a guy who runs a 
church in Adelaide, Ross Trevor Church, and as we were chatting about this, he said, you know, we have a lot of Chinese students and they're coming to our church, they're coming to faith, we're baptising them, they're going back to China and we're not sure what they do. That's the ends of the earth. That is being the face of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's what we're called to do. And what's really bizarre is right now the ends of the earth are going back to the West. Do you know where the, the second greatest missionary sending country in the world is? South Korea. South Koreans are sending people across the globe. Uh, the ends of the earth are coming back as missionaries. As, uh, Africa is a, has this massive missionary movement. The African Christian leaders are saying to us as we talk to them, we see Europe and we see the trouble that the church is in Europe. We see that the church is, is desperately doing badly in Europe and we know as Africans, this is our time. Isn't that great? They are the largest church in, in London. Guess what nationality is? Nigerian. Massive growth of the church as Africa sends missionaries back to the place that sent missionaries to them. You know, it used to be the West to the rest. Now it's everywhere to everywhere. And that is a great picture of the gospel. That's a great picture of the message of Jesus. It's a great picture of the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth are coming to us. But you know where the other ends of the earth is? Across the table. No grandchildren in the kingdom of God. Every generation needs to make its own choices. And uh, Chris Lowney, who we were chatting to, he uh, was a Jesuit priest for seven years. He uh, went into uh, New York into uh, banking, which you do as soon as you leave the priesthood. Joined a, joined a merchant bank. Uh, and, and then he wrote a, this brilliant book, and we chatted to him about the book, but then we also chatted to him about, so where's the ends of the earth to you? And here's what he said. Across the table, I have three teenage kids. They don't want to do. They want nothing to do with it. I'm desperate to see them know Jesus. The ends of the earth is in your house. We need to find and 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 communicate to and bring to 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 Jesus the next generation. Every place we go to, the idea that we're missionaries. Okay, we know we're missionary. A missionary gets on a plane and flies somewhere. A missionary stays at home and tells his family about Jesus. A missionary is someone who demonstrates their faith in front of their family. A missionary is somebody who actually reaches their children, their family, their community for Jesus. The ends of the earth is not just over there. It's across the table. The ends of the earth is also is, is, is across the cultural divide. And this is a really tough place in Australia. The cultural divide, the groups of people that are pushing away from faith. The places that are actually most barren for the kingdom of God are actually in our elite institutions. Robert Woodbury's written a brilliant article about the missionary roots of liberal democracies. Great article, great piece of research. I will resist telling you about it. But Robert Woodbury's a sociologist. He works at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. And we talked to him about where's the ends of the earth for you. And, and actually with misty eyes, he said, the social sciences in universities are mostly devoid of Christian influence. The social science, the university lecturers, the university administration, the media, that's the place. And getting the gospel into those places. And you know what? Some of you have this opportunity. Some of you are kind of touching those spaces. And it's an enormously difficult place to talk about the person of Jesus and your faith because it's met with derision and dismissal. You know, we're so, we're so much more enlightened. We're now woke. You know what that means? Just use it somewhere. It's a very hipster term. Woke. It's this idea we don't need that anymore. We've moved past that. We need to reach our institutions with the message of Jesus. We need to reach the cultural elite. We need to talk to them about what it means to follow Jesus. We need to get across the cultural divide. And finally, there's the barriers. There's places where it's illegal to follow Jesus. Mike Gore is on the series where Mike Gore runs open doors in Australia. Mike Gore travels a couple of times a year to these places. He doesn't even mention, mention where they are because they're so dangerous. Uh, he's been chased around by secret police in Eastern European countries. He's prayed with people in China and he's prayed with a church leader in China and said, 
What, what can I pray for you? Here you are in the, behind the barriers in this difficult circumstance with, with, with de- death and danger facing you in the face all of the time. And he said, what, what, would you, what can I pray for you? And this 70-year-old church leader who's faced persecution said, I pray, pray that persecution will never leave China. And he's like, Mike, because Mike's a sensible guy. <laughs> what, what do you mean? He said, I, I, see, I see what's happening in the church in Australia. And even from here, we can see what's happening in churches where you come from. And the problem is you get it so soft that it means nothing to you. I pray that persecution would stay here. I pray that it would mean something to us. That's a dawning thought, isn't it? We, the, the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth as people have called, followed the call of Christ on their life, both a specific call for them individually and also the general call to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. It's happened as people have paid the cost for that journey. It's happened as people have understood that the ends of the earth is the context that they find themselves in. You know what you should be hearing here? Nobody's without excuse. Nobody's in the space where it says, well, great message, Carl. Hope these lot are listening because it doesn't actually impact me. Every one of us. The ends of the earth means something to every one of us across the street, across the table, into the context, across the barriers, wherever you find yourself. It doesn't mean you become obnoxious to everybody who knows, but it means this, that you make a commitment to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth, wherever that is for you. One of the things we say about Jesus the Game Changer is you can actually kind of miss the main point of Jesus the Game Changer. Because what some people think, is if you go back to what I was saying at the beginning, is what Jesus the Game Changer does is it's almost this concept of, okay, Carl, I think I've got this. Jesus came and made big sociological changes in our community. And because Jesus made sociological changes like equality and care and all of those, our society is a different place. So Jesus has changed the world by making sociological changes. I think I got it. If that's what you got, you're wrong. How does Jesus change the world? One person at a time, one individual at a time, one life at a time, and they went on to change their world. Okay, who it is you talk about? Hudson Taylor, C.T. Studd, William Wilberforce, David Livingston, all of the greats that you've read about, Jesus changed their life first. And they said, well, if Jesus has changed my life and I want to be a follower of Jesus and I'm going to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth and I'm going to represent Jesus, then I need to live to the values that he lived to. And as I live to those values, I will change my world. Not because I want to bring sociological change, but because I want to represent Jesus. This city could be completely revolutionized because Jesus changed the game in you and you change the game wherever you are. Your home, your street, your workplace, your community, your sporting uh, uh, group, your group of friends, your school, your, your, wherever you are, the game can be changed, but it starts with you. Call, cost, context. I want to go out, and I might not be perfect. I don't have it all together. I don't know all the answers. I am going to change the game. That makes an enormous difference. And some of the greats of faith weren't greats of faith because they were just brilliant people that were better than everybody else. No, they paid a cost and followed their call. That's what changed the world. You know, it doesn't matter if nobody ever hears about what you do. The kingdom will know what you do. Jesus will know what you do. And that's what matters. I believe that there are probably some people here, not because Cam said to me, boy, you better say something about this because we've got, we got some problems in our church or, or in Mount Gambia. Here's, here's what I believe. I believe in every group of people, every gathering, there's people that need the game changed for them. Because nothing's going to happen until the game changes here. And you might be great at playing the game of church. And sometimes we think, okay, I got, I got church, you know, I, I kind of wander through those doors, whatever, they, whether they're here or somewhere else in Mount Gambia, I kind of wander in, I sit down, I play church. And we don't like to admit it, but that's sometimes what we do. 
the rest of our life has no resemblance to what happens in this building or any of the other church buildings in the, in the city because we're coming in playing a game of church. Jesus says, I want to change the game in you. And when I change the game in you, you're a different person and you can change the game in other places, but it doesn't happen until something happens here. Is that you? Because potentially it is. And who knows what you could do? Some of you might end up geographically at the ends of the earth, changing the world for Jesus. Some of you will go next door and will make an enormous difference. It starts with a change in you. Could we take a moment to pray as we wrap this up? And I actually don't want the band to move, even though they're probably going to come up in a minute, because I just want this to be still. Because uh, one of the things about being a museo is you end up being missing a lot of important stuff because you're too busy getting ready for the next song. We're just going to be, all of us, quiet. This is not just the ends of the earth and all those big cons concepts. This is actually about you personally, individually before God. What's God saying to you right now? In the quietness and the stillness, what do you hear? And if there's a, if there's a sense of discontent about where you stand, perhaps it's the Spirit of God speaking to you and you need to respond. I'm not going to ask you to do anything other than open your heart to Jesus. Open your life. He's given his life for you and he wants to come in and make a difference. Are you ready? In the quietness, you don't have to say anything out loud. Why don't you respond to this prayer? It's a simple prayer that will just open your life to him and you afresh tonight. Why don't you repeat this prayer with me if that's your heart, the desire of your heart. Lord, I come to you tonight with an open heart, ready to receive what you have for me. I want to say I'm sorry. I've played the game of church and I haven't been the person you've called me to be. I ask for your forgiveness. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to follow you, even if it's to the ends of the earth. Lord, we all give ourselves to you afresh tonight. We need you. We need your spirit. We want to be those that represent you well. Lord, give us the ability to change the game. And Lord, we pray that our homes, our relationships, our community, our city would be a different place because you changed the game.